Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series in the book of James under the title, Living Up to Your Faith. James is writing to first century Jewish believers, the first generation of Christians. Cornelius may have already come to faith in Christ before this letter is written, but there is hardly any Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ to speak of. The Gentile mission has not really gotten fully underway. So these Jewish believers are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, largely because they left their homes in and around Jerusalem trying to find safety uh, from persecution for themselves and for their children. And James, as a pastor in Jerusalem, is writing to encourage and disciple this scattered flock and to tell them how they should live out their faith in Christ in the context of a hostile world that does not know the Lord. And remember, they don't come to faith in Christ like many of us do. You, you grow up, perhaps, in, a lot of you in a church culture, hearing the gospel when you're young. They're coming from a Jewish culture where they're worshiping the Jehovah God, but believing that He sent His Messiah. And everything they've known about the scriptures and known about uh, what it is to live out their life in faith to God has been transformed by their knowledge of the fact that God actually sent his son to give his life for them. So James is writing here and what's going through their minds is, is really a recasting of how they should live practically for Christ day by day. That's why we always think of the book of James as a very practical book. James is getting down to business with how they live. So when we read this, oftentimes we filter what he's saying through the eyes of what it would be like to read this as a young Christian, as a Jewish Christian. And here's how James has encouraged them as we have studied and understood the letter so far. These are the titles of the sermons all the way through chapter 1, which we have reached the last time I preached. Uh, uh, James says, embrace your trials joyfully. Ask for wisdom sincerely. Celebrate your life wisely. Face temptation knowingly. Acknowledge God's gifts gratefully. Receive God's word meekly. I hope I can keep this going, by the way. I keep thinking I'm going to run out of adverbs uh, eventually here, but we're going to see how, how this goes. But when we talked about receiving God's word meekly, this is the text where James instructs that we must be submissive to the word of God by being quick to hear and obey not answering back or becoming angry or irritated or by hearing the word and failing to do the word. But we must surrender to God's word. As my dad just prayed a second ago, we have to surrender the text. We have to get under it and let it direct us pliably, yieldingly, submissively. But then after we went through that text, and we went through that that text in two different Sundays, James begins to offer real world examples of how we can apply the teaching in verses 19 through 25 of chapter 1. First, he tells us, practice your religion purely. And that's where we were the last time we looked at James. James 1, 26 to 27. Notice he wants to tell us what pure religion and undefiled before, the, before God the Father is. 
what pure religion is. He tells us, don't put on spiritual airs or pretend to be holier than you are. Live up to a faith that is real. Lord of reality, make me real. Not plastic, synthetic, pretend, phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. And how does James test the reality of our faith? He says you can tell those whose religion is pure first by whether they are willing to bridle their tongue, verse 26. That by the grace of God, they work to maintain purity in their words, which is very, very difficult. It's one of the reasons he picks this particular sin. And the reason when we get to chapter 3, he's going to spend about 18 verses on this subject. We can't wait for that, I'm sure. But bridle your tongue. In public or private, whether you're with godly people or ungodly people, you're willing to do this as a test of pure religion. Then he says, second, that they, they visit, which means they show kindness to, they minister to widows and orphans, that is, people in their society who were easily marginalized, who had great needs, but a lot of people didn't really notice. Serving widows and orphans in James' day was a test of the purity of your religion because no one would know and hardly anyone would care. But God knows and God cares. And if you are responding in obedience to him, that's really all that matters to you. And finally, he says that those who practice pure religion keep themselves unspotted from the world, which means that they strive to stay clear away from the sin of the world. And they're really serious about it. They don't even want to, be, want to have a spot from the world. They don't make excuses or dabble in sin. They're repulsed at sin because God is. You see, this is a very pure religion, a transparent Christianity. James is calling for a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of spiritual life because the person living it simply wants to obey God. But all of this is an application of a pure, faithful desire to obey the Word. This is what not being a hearer of the Word only, but a doer of the Word looks like. And keep in mind, James is writing to Jews who grew up obeying the Mosaic law. I think that it must have been very common for those living under Jewish law to perform their spiritual works and compare themselves to other people's efforts rather than simply follow God. I mean, you think about it, uh, uh, you know, we grow up with, with different standards in our homes and, and there is these list of rules that, that we try to follow and, and a lot of them are very good ways to try to live holy uh, in our lives. But we, we end up in the church and we all know this, that we do this. We sort of compare each other's lists and we, we sort of measure up to whether or not we're following uh, this list and, and sometimes we compare ourselves to other people whether or not they're following uh, the, these, this list of commitments or, or things that we, that we have to do. Imagine what it's like when you have about 613 mishvot or commandments that are actually laid out in the scriptures that the Jews endeavor to follow in every single aspect of your life. They talk about measuring up to a law. Do you have 613 standards that you try to follow every day? I doubt it. Do you realize that Paul himself struggled with this? With, with living out by, by, by doing works and, and uh, looking at what other people think about you, by his own testimony, he struggled with this. Paul describes in Philippians 3 how he was a rising star in the ranks of the Pharisees who were known for keeping the letter of the law. 
But Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or if I, am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. You see that? That little word still? Paul looks back to a time in his life, no doubt the time of his intense following of the Jewish law, where he lived out his spiritual life in front of the watchful eyes of his peers and his mentors in order to gain their favor. He was trying to please man. He says so. But now that he belongs to Jesus Christ, his only goal is to please the Lord. And Paul knows that he cannot perform his religious life to please others and still please the Lord. You can't have it both ways. We can't have it both ways. This is the same reason that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount warned the Jews that when you pray and fast and give, remember, you don't be like the hypocrites who try to get everyone to notice their good works, they, but pray and fast and give in secret so that the eyes of the Father are the only eyes that see. If you can minister to people and help the church and you can spend and be spent and not a soul ever finds out about it, about all you do, and you are perfectly content with that without anybody knowing except God. James says that's what pure religion looks like from a heart that simply wants to obey God. But now... James moves on to another application of the same principle of hearing the word and obeying the word and living up to our faith. In James 2, verses 1 through 13, James tells us, love one another impartially. That is, love people fairly, equitably. Don't play favorites. For as we're about to see, impartiality, or as the King James puts it, and a lot of us have this verse memorized in the KJV, being a respecter of persons is a terrible sin. So let's read the text together. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. Let me press the pause button one time here because I want you to see exactly what James is saying. He literally writes, my brothers, do not hold with partiality the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. In other words, here is a person who at the same time is holding on to his or her faith in Christ and holding on to the sin of partiality. And James is going to tell us that doesn't work. That's a contradiction. That's not hearing the word and obeying it. That's not living up to your faith. And now that he has said this, he's going to give them an example of what he means, and then he's going to describe the sin of partiality for all to see, and then he's going to tell us why partiality is such a terrible sin. At the end, he's going to tell us what we need to do about it. So he says, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, literally your synagogue, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. 
sit down at my feet. Literally, sit here under my footstool is what it says in the Greek. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Yes, James, we have. He's going to ask a lot of questions in this text, and the answer is always yes. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Yes, James, he has. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Yes, they are. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Yes, they do. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So once again, let's endeavor by God's grace to understand the meaning of this text in its context and to let what God is teaching us from this text impact our hearts and minds for his glory. We cannot hold the faith in the Lord of glory and the sin of partiality at the same time. In order to impress upon us then the seriousness of impartiality, what James is going to do here is describe at length the dynamic of, his, of the sin. He's going to explain why it is so wrong, and then he's going to urge us to love people equitably, fairly, impartially. So as we look at this text, we're going to look at it with three questions in mind. What is partiality? Why is partiality a sin? And how can we live, how can we obey God in this area and so live up to our faith? So let's begin with the first question that the text answers. What is partiality in the first place? Well, we could substitute words like I've already used, like favoritism, discrimination, prejudice, unfairness. All of these words are synonyms of the word partiality. The Greek word is prosopolepsia. I don't expect any of you to say that or remember it, but I love that word. It's fun to say. Uh, it's, it's, it's a combination of the word prosopon, which is a Greek word for face. All first semester students learn the word prosopon for face. And the word lepsia, which is a form of another verb they learn first semester, to receive. So this word translated partiality could be interpreted to receive or welcome the face of someone. But it really means to welcome the face of some people, but not the face of others. To receive some with open arms, but to ignore others. Or to go out of my way to greet some, but walk by others as if I don't even notice them. 
Partiality takes place when I judge a person to be worthy or unworthy of my time and my attention or my affection or my graciousness or my honor. And the basis for my judgment is how these people appear to me externally, how they look on the outside, how they dress, how they act, how they talk, maybe the color of their skin, maybe their poverty level or their ethnicity. James gives an example of this very thing in the illustration in verses 2 through 3. And I think James, I think he's exaggerating a little bit in these verses. I'll show you why. But this is the kind of thing he's talking about. It's not the only kind of illustration. He's not saying that this is why you're impartial. Everybody's doing this. But it's a really good example of the kind of thing that James has observed that believers Uh, do when they're committing the sin of partiality. James says in verses 2 and 3, as an example of favoritism or discrimination, he says, "If, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your synagogue, literally, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, that's when he says, you have, not, have, you, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and because judges with evil thoughts? Now, it, it's difficult to discern exactly what meaning James has in mind here. But the fact that James uses the word synagogue is one of the indications in the letter that this is a very early Jewish letter. The, the Jews gathered in a synagogue And the Gentiles gathered in an ecclesia. That's the way the culture ran. Eventually, ecclesia became the word used for the gathering of the church. But here the word synagogue was obviously still in vogue. And two people, he says, walk into the place where this early church is meeting. And the way James sets up the situation, we get the idea that these, these people walking in are either visitors or perhaps they're new converts. We can't say for sure. But James focuses on the way each person is received by the congregation. I think it's really interesting here that he says you, and this is not the you plural. This is the you singular. He's talking to individuals who are reading this letter. You do this, he's saying. The first person is wearing a gold ring. Literally, James says he's a gold ringed man which means, I suppose, that he could be wearing more than one gold ring, but he's wearing at least one. And he's wearing fine clothing, literally shimmering clothing. So here's this decked out person that everybody would say, wow, he's got a lot of money. In the first century world, where your clothing, uh, what your clothing looked like indicated your status or your symbol or your position in society. And so what the man wears then indicates that he's very wealthy. In fact, he's in a very narrow class of people. Do you understand that? A very narrow class of people in the world. There are lots of rich people in the world today who we would say are very, very rich. But, but in that culture, it was very rare that somebody would have these kinds of riches. There were many poor people. In fact, most of the people in the church are poor. But here comes this rich person. By contrast, another man comes in that James says is poor. And this is a word that means he's poverty-stricken. And he's wearing shabby clothing, the ESV says. You could say, literally, he's dressed in rags. And James puts the reader in the position of one appointed to receive the members and guests as they arrive. Uh, so, so it's like you're the guy out there welcoming people as they come through the door of gateway. 
And he says, here is what you do. You pay attention, he says, to the rich man in fine clothing. You fawn over him. You welcome him. You introduce him to people. You give him the best seat in the house, as it were. I noticed nobody took the best seats in the house this morning. Uh, In short, you extend to him the, the highest position of honor. But the man in rags you receive in the opposite way by offering him the lowest place, the place of disrepute or the place of shame. You say to him, stand over there in an out-of-the-way place where he wouldn't, can't be uh, uh, noticed. Like, like when you have to walk past the, the first-class people, right, on the airplane, and then you have to, they, they pull the curtain forward like they don't even want to see the second-class passengers, you know? Uh, you, you stand over there. We don't even want to see you. Or, and here's where I think he's using hyperbole, sit down at my feet. What James actually says here is sit under my footstool. Well, that's impossible. You can't actually sit under a footstool. And I think he's exaggerating here uh, for effect. Uh, James is, is uh, saying that uh, there's this ridiculous contrast because he actually asks the person to sit on the dirty ground underneath the feet of somebody who's keeping their feet off the dirty ground by resting them on the footstool. And he's trying to show the ridiculous contrast between how the congregation may receive one person as opposed to the other. The rich they exalt to the highest degree of honor in the assembly and the poor to the lowest degree of shame. So low that he's actually sitting underneath a footstool. That's showing partiality. That's discriminating based on external appearance, showing favoritism to those whose opinion you think matters, but being rude to those whom you decided are of no account. Because the rich person's opinion matters to you, but you could care less what the poor person thinks. And the ancient Jewish people, they felt this social classification very keenly. That's why Jesus criticized the Pharisees and scribes who he said a couple of times in Luke and once in Mark, if you read it, he said that the Pharisees and the scribes love to wear long robes and get the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the feasts. And rather, Jesus taught that when you go to a feast, it's better to take the lowest place and let the host say to you, friend, move up higher. And Jesus said, when you give a feast, don't just invite your relatives and friends and rich neighbors. He said, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind who cannot repay you for your kindness. You see, Jesus encouraged his followers to erase class distinctions. He told his disciples that it is a Gentile, worldly thing to equate greatness with how many people are serving you, because a rich person uh, would always have a lot of people serving him. Rather, he said, the greatest among you is the one serving at the bottom. Jesus is flipping the society order on its head. And I think that many of us understand the whole idea of social status that still exists in many ways in our world today. Have you ever gone to a social event? Maybe it was a party or reception or a gala you were invited to and you felt really out of place and you actually felt that people were looking down on you. Your first clue was that the parking lot was loaded with Mercedes and Lexuses and so you tried to find an out-of-the-way place to park your plastic Saturn, you know, so, so it wouldn't be noticed by the rest of the people. 
Have you ever visited a church where people literally don't look at you and greet you? I never thought there could be such a thing, but we've experienced it. And some of you have said you've experienced it too. I just, I don't, I can't, I can't imagine that. And I, I'm so thankful. I've never even had to say, now make sure we greet people as a church. You just do because you love one another. And so that spreads. But if you've ever been in that situation, it feels very awkward and you sit down, but nobody says anything. But if you ever met your friends at a park for a picnic, perhaps, or maybe you were meeting with a family at a restaurant for a nice time and there was this homeless person hanging about. Maybe he was sitting on a nearby park bench. Maybe he was sitting on the ground by the door of the restaurant and you had to, to kind of walk around him. And he was holding a sign that said he was hungry. Did you step into his world and engage him in conversation and help him in any way? Did you say, friend, why are you sitting out here? Come and join us. Or were you annoyed? They shouldn't let people like that hang around here. This place is going to lose business. These people, are, they could work, but they just don't want to. They're making more money than we are because they're doing this. You see, we have this sense of status and position. We understand this. We know what James is talking about, even though we're 2,000 years removed from the first century. We know how to feel low on the ladder of status, and we know how to feel high on the ladder. It's a matter of comparison. In fact, I don't know that we can actually escape this sensibility altogether. It's part of our world. But, James is saying, we commit sin. When we judge people based on what we think we know about them, based on how we've sized them up, and then we treat them with a different standard than somebody else based on how we have judged them. We go out of our way to greet and welcome and celebrate some people while we ignore others. And it doesn't have to be because some are rich and some are poor. This is just an example, remember, that James is using here. It's, it's, a, it's a common example in his day. But for us, we could celebrate somebody while ignoring somebody else for a whole host of reasons. We like people who share our interests and our commitments and our standards. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we're encouraged when we meet kindred spirits. But this connection that we share with some does not allow us, according to Scripture, to marginalize or ignore or shun or forget about or overlook or mistreat those who are outside of that circle. James says in verse 4, you have made distinctions among yourselves. This is not spiritual discernment. This is a sinful kind of distinction. It's a word that is often used in the New Testament to express doubt about a person or a situation or to have some misgivings about a person or a situation. We could say it is making a distinction between people in order to determine how well they deserve to be treated by us. In doing this, James says, we become judges with evil thoughts. Think about a magistrate or a ruler who in those days had the power to render judgment as to someone's, someone's motives or character. This is essentially what we become, James says, when we decide to treat people differently based on what we observe they are on the outside, based on what we see. Down in verse 6, you notice, James also says, you have dishonored the poor man. 
That's essentially what partiality does. It creates a situation where we are honoring some and dishonoring others by comparison. And this is because we have made ourselves judge and jury over somebody's character and carried out a sentence upon them. This is what partiality is. This, James says, is not our place. This is a sinful attitude that does not belong in the church with people who are holding their faith in Jesus Christ, who are living up to their faith. But let's move on to another question that the text answers for us. So we've answered the question, what is partiality? We know what it is. We know what it looks like now. What then is, or why then is partiality a sin? Why is it wrong to do this? Or we might nuance the question a little differently. Why is partiality that important of a sin? I mean, all of, of all of the sins that James could have addressed, and he's got a lot of them in the letter, But of all the sins he could have addressed, why single this one out, especially at this point in his letter? Well, James actually spends most of the text explaining to us the answer to this question, why is partiality a sin? Partiality is a sin, first of all, because God himself shows no partiality. You'll not find this in God. The Bible teaches that God shows no partiality. Paul says this to his own people, the Jews, in Romans 2.11, when he declares that God will judge the unrighteous and he will honor the righteous, whether they are Jew or Gentile. And in Acts 10.34, when Peter shares the gospel with the Gentile Cornelius, the first words out of his mouth were that God shows no partiality. Go look at his little sermon he preached to Cornelius and his family. The first thing he points out is God shows no partiality because Cornelius is obviously really awkward. He's there. He has a Gentile family. Here comes Peter, an apostle who's a Jew. Jews aren't even supposed to go into Gentiles' homes. They're, they, they, they're taught to show that much partiality. That was not in the law, by the way. That was in their custom. And Peter got called on the carpet in Jerusalem after this event because he had actually gone and stayed with Cornelius and his family. The other believers in Jerusalem were upset with him at first before they realized what the Holy Spirit was doing. So the first words out of Peter's mouth are that God shows no partiality. And Cornelius could be saved no matter what nation he was from, no matter what ethnicity he was, whether he was Jew or Gentile. So it doesn't matter what your income level or ethnicity or nationality or family background or even what sins you have committed. The Bible says God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4. So James makes this point in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, and I like the fact that he keeps saying brothers, beloved brothers. He's talking to believers here. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, he's, not, he's not preaching at them. This is the, the kind of thing where he could really come down on them and make them feel guilty. But he's being very gentle here, I want you to notice. Listen, my beloved brothers. Listen carefully. He says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? That's true. The poor can be saved. But he says, you've dishonored the poor man who I died for to save. When James says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, he doesn't mean he has chosen only the poor, by the way. 
but that the rich and the poor are equally savable in the mind of God. In fact, if you'll go back to verse 1, notice again how James introduces this entire section. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why would James add this title here the Lord of glory. He could have simply said, don't hold with partiality your faith in Christ. And he could have gone on. We would have totally gotten the idea. Why would he use this wonderful title here? And I think because at the beginning of his argument, he wants to remind us that the one who saved us is the Lord of glory. He's the glorious Lord. The one who, as Hebrews has it, is the radiance of the Father's glory. This Christ, this radiant, glorious Christ who is far above all that he has created, he is the one who gave us in mercy our salvation. You know, I noticed once again, being in Chicago, that when you meet people on the streets, you notice all kinds of sizes and shapes of people, and you notice various ethnicities and cultures and income levels, especially in a melting pot like Chicago. You see all kinds of people. But when you take an elevator to the top of a very tall building and look down, everybody basically looks the same. Very small and unimportant. Imagine how God sees each of us, who knows each of us fully and uniquely. There is nothing within any of us that would move God to save one person above another. None of us earned in any way our salvation. We recognize glory and strength and riches in people, but whenever you compare that with God's glory and God's strength and God's riches, everybody looks poverty-stricken. So God does not discriminate. Yes, God elects, he chooses. That's what James says here in verse 5. But choosing is God's prerogative, not ours. Because God is infinitely wise, we are not. When we receive people, we must do so without discrimination, showing mercy to all kinds of people, sharing the gospel with all people, or welcoming all church members, because the Lord of glory died for all people. And by the way, we are right to show honor to certain people for the sake of their office or their authority as leaders and teachers and parents and so forth. The Bible says we're supposed to do that. But we don't glorify and exalt people in and of themselves because we are all sinners who deserve God's wrath. And God showers his grace and mercy on all kinds of people, regardless of their station, regardless of their status. So we have to regard one another with the same love, the same acceptance, if we are to reflect the character of God. To exalt one person and marginalize another is therefore sin because it reflects poorly on the character of God who desires all people to be saved and who actually saved us. There's another reason James says that partiality is a sin. Secondly, our partiality inevitably betrays our worldly wisdom. This is very interesting. We can only see the outward appearance. We, we don't see people as God sees it. We're, we're not cardiognoscus. We're not, we are not heart knowers. So when we fawn over one person and then belittle someone else, we are so often doing this for the reasons that impress us, but they're not the reasons that impress God. 
In fact, we're even willing to overlook certain character flaws in people as we rush to make much of them. People in politics, for, interest, for instance, or, or people who, who seem very wealthy to us. So when we practice favoritism, we will inevitably exalt something that God himself never exalts. And you can see this in verses 6 and 7. James would almost be laughing at them if this were not so tragic. He says, wait a minute, are not the rich the ones you fawn over? Are not they the ones who oppress you? Haven't you been complaining about this? And the ones who drag you into court, those rich people you're fawning over, they're in that class, right? And and are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Three, to- three sins of, of this very minute class of people in James's world, these wealthy people who controlled everything. As a class, the sin number one, they oppressed the poor beneath them, often by making them servants and giving them poor wages. We're going we're to see the poor again very close uh, at the end of chapter four and, and chapter five in James. Poor, rich people, we, we, you might come away with James if you don't have the rest of God's word to understand what, he, what he's saying, thinking that he's always down on rich people. And that's not exactly the case. You, have, you see what he's saying here uh, it, it, as far as the rich and the poor go. But what he's saying in, in this particular sin is that they're the people who, if, if they do not know God, they are oppressing the poor. They're, they're, they're making them servants and giving them poor wages. And ironically, most of the church, when these rich people walk in, they're poor people. So James is like, why are you giving them this kind of attention anyway? Secondly, as a class, they were the ones who dragged the poor into court. And they, this would often happen. The, the rich people had a lot of money, but they would sue or have imprisoned poor people so they could further enrich themselves with what little that poor person actually had. This happened in that world. And thirdly, as a class, they were the people who blasphemed the name of the Lord, James says. And he could be uh, here talking about the fact that because they oppressed the Lord's people, they were, uh, they were no, uh, the, the Lord's people, they were actually oppressing the Lord himself. Remember what uh, the Lord says to Paul, why are you persecuting me, he says, to, on the road to Damascus. And James could be talking about something like this, or he could be talking about the fact that they, they, the rich people were known to reject Christ and the gospel. Remember what Jesus said about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom? So James is like, whose side are you on? Why are you exalting this wealthy person from a class of people that, that you say are oppressing you and enslaving you? And, and furthermore, they dishonor the, the name of the Lord who saved you. And yet you also dishonor this poor man by shoving him aside. The church of Jesus Christ is the one place in the world where these two men should be equally honored. But because of your human wisdom, because you are starstruck with riches and position, you're deceived. You do the unthinkable and show a lack of concern for someone whom Christ died for. In fact, we can just reflect for a minute on how many Christian superstars the church has exalted and how many have crashed and burned. I mean, sadly, leaders of large churches and Christian organizations and Christian movements and Christian music industries. 
And eventually we learn that these men or women are just as weak morally as everybody else. They've left their marriages, they've left their families, they've been unfaithful, they've been embezzled, they've been immoral, they've been unethical. And in some cases, they've even come out, come out and denounced their faith and made a ministry of denouncing your faith, reconstructing your faith and not being Christian anymore even. And these are people who everybody was following and quoting and reading their books, and going to their conferences, and making much of them. We never learn. And everyone is always disappointed and shocked, so we turn to exalt some other Christian superstar and follow his ministry and read his books and take his advice and go to his conferences. Why? Because, because we're deceived. We're impressed with size and numbers and popularity. I tell the young men in, uh, when I teach pastoral theology, don't ever get into a ministry where you are exalted to the place where nobody ever has the right to question you. Where nobody ever says, oh, you, there's nothing going on there. That's the pastor. You are doomed if people start thinking that about you. None of us get a pass on that. We all need accountability. One of the reasons that I was so thrilled to introduce elders to this church is because I want a, a team of people with me leading this ministry so that there's never any question about what is going on in the pastoral leadership. But when we exalt a person, we are usually in danger of exalting him for the wrong reasons, and we will almost always be very disappointed. So learn to look at all believers as who they are, sinners saved only by God's grace, and learn to look at all other people as those who need the Lord to save them. We, we, we look at political leaders and we look at these superstars in our culture, and sometimes you need to step back and just say, yeah, but that person is going to be condemned to the lake of fire forever unless he or she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. That's reality. That's how we ought to look at the world. There's a third reason that partiality is a sin, and it, I think it may be the most important reason. James says partiality violates the very essence of God's moral law. Because all of the ways that God desires us for, to behave toward other people may be summarized in the way Jesus taught us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what James says in verses 8 through 11. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's pause there for a moment. Remember, James is writing to Jewish Christians who grew up keeping the Mosaic law to show their faith in God. Jesus fulfilled the law by keeping all of it and by releasing us from its penalty through his death on the cross. But James can still appeal to the church based on the moral teaching of the law, almost all of which is going to be reiterated for us in the New Testament for Christians following the leading of the Holy Spirit. So based on what these Jewish believers knew the law to say, remember, there's, if, if this is the first letter ever written in Scripture, there's no New Testament Scripture yet. This is the first, this is the first part of it. So, so the, the believers preaching in the New Testament are appealing to the Old Testament law. And he says here, how are you showing genuine love to everyone if you show love only to people who impress you? 
That's exactly what you're doing if you show partiality. You might be able to say, I'm showing this rich person the love of Christ. But you are certainly not showing that poor person the love of Christ. Do we realize that when we spend time exalting and fawning over some people that we are going to overlook others? You are not going to be loving them as you love yourself. Put yourself in their position. Would you want to be the one who is ignored? Would you want to be the one who is set aside or shown little regard? So when you live this way, you're violating, James says, God's moral law. You've become a lawbreaker, a transgressor. That's the word in the New Testament specifically used for breaking a law, a written law, a transgressor. And the law is like a fine vase. You crack the vase on one side, and you can't say, I haven't broken the vase. Look, most of it's still intact. <laughs> no, if you, if you damage even part of it, you've broken the vase. It's, it's a don't, if, if you break it, you've bought it. You're not going to be able to convince the stone or store owner that you haven't broken it just because it's broken a little bit. So verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And then his example, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. He's comparing one commandment to another. If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. It doesn't matter what law you've broken, you've, you've broken all of them. I don't think that he's using the examples of murder and adultery for any particular reason, unless he's trying to say that a lack of love for people is just as serious as these sins. But he's illustrating the point that to break one part of the law is to break all of it. Now, I know that you know, verse 10, by heart. I mean, if I started to quote, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, almost every one of you is going to finish this. He is guilty of all. But do you think about the context of this verse? We know so many verses of Scripture out of context. The one point of failure that James is talking about in the context is failing to love one another as the Lord taught us to love. That's really something. And we fail to love when we show partiality, when we discriminate, when we show favoritism to some people and ignore others. Partiality is a sin because it does nothing to align ourselves with God's concerns and it betrays our worldly wisdom and it cancels out our ability to obey the very, to obey the very command of Jesus that he said we 